0: Coming to you live from the Sydney Writers Festival. This is TGIF.
1: Thank God it's Friday! Live from the Sydney Writers Festival. A welcome for a special edition. I'm Richard Glover, and this week we'll hunt him and we'll collect him with the music. It's Mark Seymour yeah. and our panel: Anthony Ackroyd, Rebecca DiUnamuno and Tommy Dean. Yeah. And our audience of book lovers, thank you for coming. First, as always, here is the news from nowhere. I was happily ensconced during one of our recent rainy weekends with a book called Ex Libris by Anne Faderman. It was full of elegant essays about the world of writing. Included was the story of George Bernard Shaw, who gave one of his own books to a friend, and he signed it with a flourish to Philip with esteem, George Bernard Shaw. And some months later, trawling a second-hand bookshop, <laughs> GBS came across the inscribed copy, which his friend had clearly sold to a dealer. Well, George Bernard Shaw bought the copy and posted it afresh to his friend, <laughs> inserting an extra word, to Philip, with renewed esteem. I was trottling away, enjoying the anecdote with its mix of humiliation and defiance. Right up to the moment, I remembered the same thing happened to me. In my case, the emotional freight was slightly heavier. It happened at my mother's funeral. A lively staff member from my mother's nursing home approached me with a copy of one of my own books. It was a pristine copy of The Mud House inscribed, To Mum, with lots of love from your son Richard. The staff member, this is true, had purchased the book at the local second-hand book exchange (laughs) whose stamp it still bore. And the staff member thought, I might as well have the copy. (laughs) Beat that, George Bernard Shaw. My mother swapped her own son's book. I do hope Mum got some decent literature in exchange. I I recall she quite liked P.D. James and half hoped that that was the author she chose in return for my book, since P.D. James can really write. I mean, who wants to be swapped by their own mother, especially for something poorly written? The staff member, as she handed over the volume, had a slightly peculiar twinkle in her eye. Although she didn't say anything, I imagine she'd been somewhat amused to find my gift so lackadaisically discarded by my mother amid the furry-paged and mildew-spotted volumes at the local book exchange. Standing in second-hand bookshops, examining the various inscriptions, can often bring this undertow of sadness. Anne Faderman, in the book I was reading, talks of coming across an inscription in a second-hand store in America. It said, To Father on his birthday, March 16, 1928, in the nature of a peace offering, question mark, (laughs) signed Alan. As Faderman puts it, after 67 years, that heartbreaking question mark still hangs in the air. She says, I only hope that the book found its way to a bookseller long after father's death. If not, father, shame on you. Of course, book signing has now become professionalised. Authors volunteer to visit bookstores, signing copies for anyone who asks. And over the years, I've been part of scores of such events. I always advise people, if you can find a copy of one of my books that is unsigned, hang on to it, because it's really worth something. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also adept at keeping people talking, so that even if there is only one person in my queue, I'm not left sitting alone. If you ask sufficient questions, really? And what primary school did you attend after that? (laughs) A single customer can last as long as the 47 people queuing for the more successful author at the next table. (laughs) Speaking of more successful authors, I recall that Bryce Courtney was involved in so many of these signings and with such lengthy queues that he developed a repetitive strain injury. He tried to bandage up the injured wrist but to no avail. And being a top marketing man, he instead did a deal with Kodak who took a photo of each happy customer standing with Bryce in the book, the snap then pasted inside the front cover. True story. (laughs) Of course, there's always the chance someone will queue for the wrong author. Daniel Finkelstein, a member of Britain's House of Lords, tells the story of the one-time British PM, Edward Heath, who loved to sign copies of his own books. One day while he was signing, a woman approached holding a political memoir. She had confused her ex-PMs. The book was a volume by Heath's chief rival, the former Labor Prime Minister, Harold Wilson. And as Finkelstein tells the story, Heath said nothing, carefully inscribed the book, and then handed it back. The woman thanked him and headed off. And Heath's minder, looking over his shoulder, was the only person able to report the nature of the inscription. A million apologies for the damage I have done to Britain. Yours sincerely,
2: Harold Wilson.
1: (laughs) Of course, back at my mother's funeral, I wondered what to do with the copy of The Mud House with which I'd been presented. It's a marvellous book. Absolutely hilarious. Yet I already have 30 unsold copies (laughs) beneath my bed. Do I really need another? It's also only managed a rating of 3.8 on Goodreads. Well, well under the five regularly achieved by P.D. James. Alas, I cannot, given my mother's recent death, return it to my mother, GBS style, with an inscription declaring renewed love. But here's an idea. The book is stamped with a message from the book exchange, noting that I have the right at a small cost, to swap it once more at their establishment. (laughs) It may be they have a copy of Mummy Dearest. (laughs) Or at the very least, something by Sigmund Freud. (laughs) And that's the news from nowhere. Well, it's a tale more tragic than funny, but it's literary. It (laughs) is literary. And and we do want to... We do want to focus on books being live from the, live from the writers' festival. But, but they, first, we must check, of course. Oh, sorry. sorry Tommy,
2: I've go, Tommy, never, go. I've never authored a book to uh, inscribe and have it come back to me, but uh, my, my, my inscription story was when I was 15, I was in a community theatre play, and the director, a female director of the play, had quite a uh, robust affair with the lead actor uh, in the play. We all knew about it. Everybody knew about it. It was this very sort of flaming, classic, small theatre romance... <laughs> um, but at the end of the at the end of the run, uh, we were back at her house for the cast party, and she gave everyone a book that she, as uh, she, in a big production uh, because she's theatrical, uh, said uh, e- each of these books represents what I believe each of you are or will be, and I trust that you will take them in the spirit of love that they are given. And she handed us all our book, and I opened my book, uh, which she had wrapped or labeled incorrectly. Uh, for surely the book that I had been handed a book of ribald poetry <laughs> which was inscribed with all the things that she would do to me when the party was done.
0: Oh. <laughs> you had it in writing. Well, the, well <laughs> I did. As,
2: as a 15-year-old, I was going, I knew I was good for theatre, but I didn't know. I had inspired <laughs> so much passion. But what, did the, what, what book did the real Romeo get? Uh, he, got, he got To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because apparently to me she said you have the passion of scout Uh, Mm. but I wanted his book (laughs) (laughs) I wanted his book Uh,
1: now let's check you up with this week's news who is in a muddle over the Middle East oh this must be the Donald the Donald Donald Trump do you love Donald Trump folks (laughs)
3: yeah (laughs) don't you love the look on world leaders faces when he walks over it's like oh here he comes (laughs) (laughs) oh just keep smiling do the handshake I mean, if Donald Trump had a literary style, it would be a stream of unconsciousness. Because you never know what he's going to say. It's like, I thought it would be easy. Bringing peace to the Middle East, I thought it would be huge. Tremendous, tremendous success. But who am I kidding? I can't even pass my, my health care bill. I also can't pass a Big Mac, a fries and a kidney stone. <laughs> Intelligence agencies, uh, they're leaking information. It's so unfair. You never see me. Showing intelligence to anyone. (laughs) Thank you. Tremendous. Huge, huge, tremendous. Thank you. (laughs) Climate change, easy. I'm going to build a big wall in space to stop the bad bits of the sun reaching the earth. (laughs) Job done. I'm kind of a smart person. What can I tell you? And when he walked over to the Pope, he can see the Pope going, God, this guy looks like George Pell in an orange toupee. (laughs) Do you you sit my- on your side of the table. Then <laughs> do I've brought prayer your holiness I brought prayer back to America because since I've been president so many people are saying dear god save us all. <laughs> 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 what about that creepy shot of the pope? And, and and Donald's family—it's yeah. like the Adams family. Yeah. <laughs> but do you see the, the creepy and the kooky. The, the Trumpy family. Diddle-a-da, Donald. Didle da piss off. moron. Yes, Tommy. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Huge. But if that look—you know—that uh, look,
2: that look in that famous photograph of the Pope—it looks like at that moment, it's the only time I can imagine the Pope. Has questioned whether God exists. (laughs) (laughs) I was wrong. I
1: was wrong. He doesn't look happy. Doesn't. But the the Middle East is 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 interesting, isn't it? Because the Donald had said only a few weeks ago, "I'm going to sort the Middle East out." I'm I'm going to. And this week he met Netanyahu and he said, "Actually, it's quite
0: difficult." (laughs) Yeah, and he said he said that about healthcare.
1: Who could have guessed that? Yeah. Peace in the Middle East was kind of difficult.
0: And he said the same about healthcare. Who would think that people's lives mattered that much? Like, it's like, this is a lot harder than I thought. It's, yes, because it's not all about you now, Donald. There's other people involved. He's turning into that relative or that friend that you have when you go to a party and you invite them and you go, yeah, 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 no, we should, in- we should invite them. And, and then you know about halfway into the party why you shouldn't invite them because they drink everything and just go up to people and tell them what they think. That's Donald Trump at the moment. And so I, I reckon last drinks, I'm calling it. Last drinks, taxi, Uber, get out. Yeah, yeah.
2: But he had gone from Saudi Arabia and he went over and he, he was still in the Middle East, but it was saying things like, well, we just got back from the Middle East. So he, he wasn't even aware that he was still in the Middle East. Oh, to be fair,
3: Tom, he, he was saying right in the middle. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, that's what I mean. The, I think I think when he was
2: stopped. saying how easy it would be to solve the problem, he was talking about maybe there was like two suburbs <laughs> in his mind. Yeah. oh, so if we could just get Newtown and Merrickville to congratulate one another, <laughs> that'll bring the inner west together and all will be peaceful. I mean, tell,
1: tell that to Mike Baird, who tried to get the councils to amalgamate and, and got thrown it, from exactly, office. Exactly,
0: <laughs>
2: exactly. My theory is, I've always said it would be easy. I actually think Middle East... Uh, piece would be easy uh, and the example is coming up uh, this very Wednesday we need to teach the Middle East to play state of origin football <laughs> that is what we need uh, the only problem is uh, they want to play every day <laughs> every day <laughs> gotta have time gotta have time between the matches that's the law let uh, us uh, let you us know by the way. the way just sometimes when you're preparing for these things you think I'm wondering how well a rugby league joke's going to go at a literary film
0: <laughs> <laughs> and now here's your answer <laughs> I while so, uh, you think were thinking we
2: I'm not sure what he's talking about <laughs> Everyone in the car is laughing. <laughs>
1: Who is gambling... <laughs> Next question. Who is gambling on Australia's love of gambling?
0: Oh, this is an interesting story. This is some um, uh, federal sports minister, Greg Hunt, has decided uh, to launch a national lottery to help athletes um, and the future of Australian sports. So, basically, you're going to um, raise tens of thousands of dollars by allowing people to enter the lottery. Like,
1: like the Opera House lottery.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly right, exactly right. And, and this is all happening whilst they're trying to back down on... Um, advertising during sporting matches of gambling and the like and you think so you've got to say it's really bad to gamble guys um ben johnson a proven drug cheat is now the face of a betting agency if that's not going too far i don't know what is i mean really really he's clearly got no money and um so so you think well why now are you doing do they not see the hypocrisy like when I wake up, right, and I'm a bit bloated and I put on a pair of pants and they don't quite do up, I don't leave the house confidently thinking no one will notice.
1: Those <laughs> pants are harder to put together, because I've got a pair like that, they're harder to put together than both sides in the Middle East.
0: Exactly right. <laughs> if only they would shake hands, you see. So I don't do that. I don't walk around with that. How can you be in a high position of power, government position, and not realise the hypocrisy of it? Yeah probably is bad
2: and good. Bad the,
0: and yeah. good, depending on who's running it. But is maybe. there a
2: prize? What's the, I didn't see what
1: the prize. Oh well, it'll be like the Opera House. He hasn't got detail, but it'll be like the Opera House lottery. There'll be a million dollars. All right. Oh, sorry. Six I, bucks in. You know. W-
2: w- did this happen before I got here? The Opera House lottery? <laughs> uh, yeah, before you got here. Yeah. yeah, yeah it happened I, before I, every I was. Every time born. you kept saying it, I kept thinking, "Man, I don't, I don't know who won, but who owns the Opera House?" <laughs> you like, did, you know, like one of those boys' club <laughs> raffles where you win a house in <laughs> Queensland. <laughs> It's you. I know, you're awesome. I wonder so many this. people bought tickets, you know. <laughs> That'd be great. Like, that's what this should be, you know. It should not only be a chance to raise money for the Olympians, but we should have one spot on every team, and that's the prize. Yep. Like, you know, buy a $5 ticket, and you win a trip. To wherever the Olympics are held in that particular year of the lottery, and you get to be the fifth guy in the 4x400 in the four relay.
0: <laughs> I reckon just, just, throw, awesome. yeah, just throw them straight in. Just yeah. go, here's a hammer, there's a circle, throw go! go. <laughs> well,
2: Presenting us in javelin, ticket number 6427. <laughs> Blue.
3: What I want to know is why, why does this have to be sport? I mean, I love sport wearing the swan's cap here. But couldn't it be if we have a lottery for the future of literature? The future of poetry. (laughs) Poets should be more militant, don't you? Don't you think? Walking down the street, what do we want? Iambic pentameter. When do we want it? Quite soon, my lord. (laughs) And what about us? What about Tommy, Rebecca, myself, Richard? Let's just get a chocolate wheel happening down the back. Yeah, everyone puts in two bucks. We we profit. It doesn't have to be sport every time. Although there are some sports people who I agree need help. And I'm all in favour of raising money uh, through a bingo night to fly Margaret Court back to the 12th century. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she could fly on one nation's aeroplane. That'd be fantastic. (laughs) Double fault. Okay. <laughs> All right.
1: Who is finally who, is, uh, who has found it necessary to rebel after she was called posh? Rebel Who's or rebel? rebel? Rebel. Rebel.
3: Well, this is Rebel Wilson, who um, is um, I like Rebel. Rebel's fantastic. You're following the Rebel Wilson story. She's suing some media people. I think she's fantastic. A wonderful uh, comic actress. And she has the right to sue anyone she likes. But I do think she's stretching credibility just a bit when she said, I've lost work because people believe I lied about my age. Because that would disqualify 97% <laughs> of all actors working in Hollywood. But don't you think if Hollywood can make a buck out of you, they forgive you. doesn't matter what you've done, don't you think? You know, I mean, Hugh Grant was caught with a prostitute. We had Mel Gibson spewed up some sort of racist diatribe. Chris O'Donnell starred in Batman and Robin. <laughs> okay, some things are unforgivable. Uh, yeah, point taken.
1: Yes, yeah, she. Uh, she I, I love the case, though, because you'd think that it would be a case of where she was being called working class and she thinks she's posh, but it's the other way around, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And it's it's she claims that it's former school friends that have, uh, with a tad of jealousy, that have caused this. And I, I think what's playing out now is actually a great script for a film. Mm. So that she's creating her own work as well, because she can now play herself yeah. in the, in the, the trial. trouble. Is if it's successful, then she'll
2: lose the defamation action because the court will judge that her career is off and running.
0: Exactly right. It's catch twenty two. It's terrible.
2: And the <laughs> problem is when she auditions for the show, they're going to say, "Well, oh, this trial happened three years ago, and you are too old." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know if you can play three years ago.
0: But there's a, there's a, proven, there's a proven track record, isn't there, of, of celebrities suing major publications and winning, yeah. isn't there? Like, that seems to be on their side mostly, doesn't it? Yeah,
1: the problem is that the, the damage is that she lost her role in Kung Fu Panda.
0: That's what she's claiming damage. And, and I do want to say that's an animated film and no-one would have known if she was in it or not. I mean, <laughs> of all the world's tragedies, it doesn't seem the greatest. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: I'm saying. It was all due to Anthony Aykroyd, who is here with Rebecca De Unamuno, Tommy Dean and our lovely audience. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thank God it's Friday. Now, one of the stars of this year's festival is Jamie Morton. We heard him a little uh, earlier. He created the hit podcast called My Dad Wrote a Porno, in which Jamie reads out his father's lamentable attempts to write an erotic novel. If you were to create a podcast about a family member, uh, what would it be called and what would be the point of interest? Rebecca?
0: Well, in a, in a similar um, style to Jamie Morton's thing, my, my mine would be about my dad, uh, Jose is his name. Um, and um, he doesn't have a brother called Hose B, by the way, if anyone's wondering. Uh, so the number of times... If he had a dollar for every time he said that, I tell you what. But the name, the name of, of this would be... Um, it would be... Of the podcast would be The Panamaniac. Uh, because he's from Panama. And it's been a stage show that I've been wanting to write for years. And I've only had... So can I t- do
1: my joke now? Yeah. Uh, he, he came here with nothing but his hat. Oh. <laughs>
0: Oh, come which, on! Which ironically are not made in Panama, which is, isn't that interesting? Panamanian hats, no. Anyway. Um, I
3: it, also say, because you said that, Richard, half the audience is now leaving.
0: <laughs> <laughs> come back! <laughs> You'll never make it! They're all going to buy <laughs> Panama hats now. Sorry, Rebecca. Oh, it's not their
2: fault they got caught up in the Panama Canal. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's true. <laughs> which my great grandfather helped build. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so anyway, it would be about him. And uh, and I I, I started, I'd thought of a show idea years ago and I was going to call it The Panamaniac. And uh, that was probably about, I reckon that was probably about 15 to 17 years ago that I came up with the show title. And that's all I've written so far. So it would be a podcast about him. And it would be just following my dad around 24-7 uh, because <laughs> you'd have to. Because he's just, he's so hilarious. You'd have to listen to his words of wisdom. Uh, you'd have to listen to his unique perspective on life the way he describes things so when he says about his grandfather building the canal and he said and, and then he stayed in Panama and uh, he and his wife my great grandma my grandmother they uh, they opened a place you know the place the kind of place that people go into and then they sit and you eat I said a restaurant yeah 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 that's it so he's, it's as though he thinks of them first and I just name them you know like he's that kind of guy uh, it also include his attempts at humor which are many and varied and not always successful. It would include listening to Billy Joel. You see him dancing around listening to Billy Joel. He does a bit of a dance. My dad, this is not good for radio, but this is just here for the the lovely people at the Sydney Writers' Festival. My dad's dancing consists of this. (laughs) But then a very special move where you'll occasionally go, (laughs) so um that's that's pretty that's pretty much my dad's and then uh and also there'd be so many segments um it'd be dance like no one's uh watching there'd also be a segment sorry what did you say because he does have selective hearing and uh, that's when my mum would just tell him the last um 30 years of their relationship and uh there'd be just so many so many segments and it's inspired me now i think i might do it I think I might make it.
1: To to- My no, dad is really a Panamaniac. He's
0: the, the, the Panamaniac,
1: we'd call it. A- <laughs> Anthony Ackroyd, how, what yeah. a podcast are you going to do about which family member?
3: Uh, I'm doing a podcast called My Mum, World Class Warrior. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me paint the picture, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I, I was actually born in uh, Tasmania.
2: I come you're not calling it the Tasmaniac?
3: <laughs> not the Tasmaniac, no. Any, anyone in from Tasmania? I don't know how? Hey. Give me six, yeah. Um, And um, I grew up in a very poor working class suburb, and uh, you know I had no friends. If you you only had friends if you were in a gang, I didn't qualify. And uh, so I spent a lot of time with my mum, who is a lovely person. That's the first. She's absolutely lovely, but she has what psychologists refer to technically as catastrophic expectations. Anyone have a mum like this? Yeah. Just leaving for school was like preparing for Everest. Oh, before you go, dear, here's a jumper in case it gets cold. Here's a raincoat in case it rains. Here's some sandwiches in case you get hungry. Here's some other sandwiches in case you're beaten up and those sandwiches are stolen. (laughs) Here's a geological hammer in case the earth shifts on its axis, creating a snap ice age and you're buried under a glacier. And... Funny, even when she's trying to be helpful, she injects it with a little bit of worry, unconsciously. Like, the first time I did stand-up, I was in Sydney, I rang Hobart, I rang Mum for moral support, I said, Mum, I'm going to try stand-up comedy tonight, I'm really scared, I'm really frightened. She said, oh, go on, dear, give it a shot. No-one's going to laugh at you. <laughs> 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 uh, how right she was. Uh... I'm
1: okay
2: (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what's your podcast Uh, My podcast is about my grandmother And it's called The Devil is in the Details Uh, Because that was the one saying that she had That she totally didn't understand what it meant (laughs) She thought The devil was in the details (laughs) (laughs) She wouldn't tell you anything She thought that's where he lived (laughs) And all the details she would share was the devil could be seen the other, the other the, I suppose I could call the podcast as well Only Whores Wear Red <laughs> That was her favorite thing to say If you ever saw any woman anywhere wearing red, whore <laughs> Only whores wear red, Tommy And the other one is She would never let us eat pretzels she never let us eat pretzels Because she used to always say They're dipped in lye, did you know that? They're dipped in lie. it's poison They're dipped in lie. the devil's in those details, Tommy <laughs> Devil, why why devil pretzels snack?
1: out of all the snacks she could
2: have? Well, picked? here's the weird part. Years later I looked it up. Pretzels are dipped in lye. <laughs> she was right. Lie. There's a baker's quality lie, that's what gives pretzels their sort of pretzelly flavor. It's an alkaline that the pretzels okay. are dipped in, and cool. that's what gives them that brown color in the baker. I thought you meant and
0: lying. Uh, They're dipped in lie.
2: But why did a, she associate a, lie with the devil? I I, mean, I don't know. But all I know now is I have to start taking the whole "whores wear red" thing seriously. <laughs> we were writing
1: her off. Yeah, and that's hard for a swans fan. <laughs> sure.
2: So And so, the other thing that she used to
3: do—it's
2: also white. Richard. Well, this is the other detail. This is the other detail would be we, we, probably be the whole centerpiece of the main podcast. Is she was very famous, very rural. My grandparents were rural, and uh, she was very famous in rural circles for her homemade pickles. <laughs> homemade pickles. The best homemade pickles was my grandmother. Turns out, we find out years later, she would drive to the city, buy pickles, <gasps> come home and chop them up and put them in her own jars and put a ribbon around them. Wow. She was the Rebel Wilson of rural pickle making.
1: Well, the devil is in that Double detail. detail. Is. Well, thank God, it's funny.
3: Thank Musical God
1: it's
0: Musical scene. Coming to you live from
1: the Sydney Writers' Festival, this is TGIF. Yeah, we are live from the Sydney Writers' Festival. Anthony Aykroyd, Rebecca Day Unamuno and Tommy Dean. And, of course, it's time for the Wheel of Death. Are you ready, ladies and gentlemen? I asked our, our, our wonderful audience here to suggest some of the books they've come across during this year's Sydney Writers' Festival. So these are all books which are featured... Uh, during this year's festival, and we're going to get Rebecca De Unamuno to, uh, well, read a scene from one of the books. Is that fair enough? That's Just fair read enough. A scene I've never one read of them, the- how easy? so let's do it. That, that's pretty easy. Yeah, sure. Except she's never seen these books before, and we don't have any copies of them. The Quick and the Dead. <laughs> My dad wrote a porno, Time to Die. The Sellout, The Mothers, Selling the Dream. The Pleasures of Leisure, Closing Down in the Country of Men. 1606, The Dry... Rather Be the Devil, Insomniac City, Blitzed, and we're back to The Quick and the Dead. We're going to spin it, round and round and round it goes. Which book will Rebecca De Unamuno be reading us a page from? Well, the book from The Wheel of Death is... 1606 1606 Thank you to the people who suggested that A couple of people suggested this Because I think they thought they would cause you some difficulty Uh, Yes,
0: 1606 (laughs) Well I I mean I could give you a plot synopsis Of this particular book But I mean really what's the point Um, Because I don't know one But no, this is a a book that's set uh, In an apartment building Am I close? (laughs) Oh my God! This is like guess who? <laughs> um, and it's uh, and it's folk. Now I'm too scared to say it because I get really real. It's set. This is a one apartment, sixteen oh six, which is the penthouse apartment of this particular building, and contained within this apartment, nobody has ever seen the person that lives in this apartment building, um, and nobody can access it, obviously, because not everyone can get in the lift and go up to the penthouse floor, and uh, I'd like to read uh, a snippet from the book, it's from chapter six, and uh, it describes what the uh, room is like in 1606, and who the inhabitant is that lives there, so I'll just start now. 1606 had always been a mystery, and yet deep within its walls contained its own plot points, The big brown wooden door, complete with a gold 1606 nailed to it. A huge brass door knocker that was pointless as a bell was to its left. (laughs) The doormat was a beautiful plaid fabric. Clean, dirty feet never have wiped themselves upon the mat before. When you open the door, it creaks slightly through years of neglect and unoiled hinges. As you step into the living room, where you are greeted by a fireplace that roars only in winter, strange. (laughs) There are paintings placed precariously on all of the walls, hung by a mere cord that may not be strong enough to hold the weight for the pictures that hang Sebastian, who lives in 1606, doesn't read the packaging of picture-hanging wire. (laughs) When it recommends two to three kilos, he says no. (laughs) Sebastian is not one to have matching furniture within the living room. One brown windback chair sits in the corner facing the fire. The others are deck chairs that he has collected from his holiday house and other people's throughout his time up in the Hamptons. (laughs) Oh, good, I'm getting good at this. All right. As you enter the kitchen, the cupboards are empty, apart from a set of cutlery that he was given by his mother on his 21st birthday, and several bowls and plates and cups also mismatched. Sebastian, the bachelor, the perpetual bachelor, the mystery bachelor that lives in 1606. How often Maisie wanted to travel from level two all the way up to 16. She knew the things she wanted to tell him. She didn't know his face. She didn't know his name. But mystery was all she needed. As she sat at her desk and prepared to write the final chapter of the murder mystery entitled, Who is he? She paused momentarily and heard a slight tapping at her door. Unlike 1606, 204 has neither a knocker nor a bell, just the capacity for one finger to slide through the wrought iron gating and tap with a nail upon it. She knew she'd make her way to 1606, but for now there was a guest, rare in her life, rare on level two. She opened the door, 15 padlocks, it took five minutes, and there she stood, face to face with a complete stranger. He was holding a jar. He thrust it forward and said, My name's Sebastian. Could I borrow some sugar?
2: Does she die? Does she live? No. She lives. It not, oh, not only paints a, a picture of mystery and suspense, but I want to know what happened in the first five chapters.
0: <laughs> because it's all about her. She's the protagonist, and, then, and, she, and she lives in the level two, but she's very ambitious, so she just wants to work her way up.
1: <laughs> no, I like it. You know why he wanted the sugar? He was making pickles. Yes, that's right.
0: That he'd bought in another right. town.
1: Changing the flavour a little bit. Changing the flavour. Uh, that was that was uh, that was. What is 16th? What is it? Is, is it about? It? Is it about a history book or? It's about
0: Shakespeare.
1: It's about Shakespeare. It's about Shakespeare. It's about Shakespeare. See. Oh him. him.
0: Snap. All right. Uh. The second floor, my lord, is clearly not one that one should inhabit. Aye, if thou wishest to travel and ascend the order much higher up and find duties and cares beyond belief, then 1606 be it, my lord.
1: There you go. <laughs> oh. Very good. Now, uh, this is a literary festival, and people do say the best predictor of reading is whether your parents read. So were there books in your home? What were they... And were you one of those who first found out about sex by discovering some book on your parents' shelf that mentioned it? Anthony Aykroyd.
3: <laughs> Why me? <laughs> <laughs> How did you know? You know I mean, mum read a, a, a bit of, <laughs> you know, we've heard about mum already. Uh, <laughs> she had a few, few, few romance books, and dad read, they, dad read a few westerns. They didn't read much, but I loved reading. Because, as I said, it was a very dangerous neighbourhood, so, you know, I didn't have any friends, so my friends were
1: books. Oh, oh. <laughs> because the Just books like were the us, only... Anthony, they all say as one. <laughs> well, you chose the books because they were the only ones that didn't punch you in the face.
3: <laughs> There's <laughs> some mean books there. But I, I used to love reading books, and I, you know, I was competitive with my sister. Imagine this: kids competing about how many books they could read. Wow, not, the high, not which level of you know, World of Warcraft they're on, but how many books they can read. And I used, to, I used to have this image of myself as a very scholarly reader, you know, at the age of eight, and I used to walk around with a book in my dressing gown pocket just to show how serious I was about reading. In case someone says, hey, you got a book in your pocket? Yes, it's The Adventurous Four by Enid Blyton. I favorite it over the more popular Famous Five. <laughs> you wonder wonder why he got beaten up. (laughs) Now, uh, as far as learning about sex, there was no books in... in, There was a a copy of Post that, you know, picks people, but that only gets you so far. But (laughs) I don't know if you can remember 1972, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. (laughs) But a book was released It was very controversial. It was called The Joy of Sex. And it was released, and there was no internet then, by the way. And uh, in case you don't remember. So I went out... It was written by Dr Alex Comfortably
1: <laughs> Off after writing a load of tosh. By
3: Dr <laughs> Dr. Alex Comfort. That's right, Dr Alex Comfort. So I went out at the age of 14. I thought, I've got to find out about sex. So I thought I'd sandwich The Joy of Sex between two other books, bring it up to the counter, and the guy went, Oh, stranger in a strange land. I, Robot, The Joy of Sex! <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I didn't know much about sex because I went to a Christian Brothers school and uh, there wasn't much joy of sex there. It was a bit of comfort given to some boys. but um, This is true, ladies and gentlemen. Now, remember, this is Hobart in the 70s. This is absolutely true. Our entire sex education at St. Virgil's College consisted of being shown slides of naked statues... <laughs> and a film of a kangaroo giving birth. (laughs) And if that doesn't set you up for a healthy sex life... (laughs) I remember when I met my wife, I said, darling, we're going to be together for a long time. When it comes to the bedroom, very limited menu. (laughs) You either have to... you're going to have to lie perfectly still... (laughs) or hop. Keep in time, darling. Keep in time.
1: I feel I've said too much, ladies and gentlemen. So, Tommy
2: Dean, were there books in the household? There were a lot of books. It was old books. I, my first book reading was uh, a lot of Mark Twain, read Tom Sawyer, yeah. uh, read Huck Finn. Uh, but my grandmother also, uh, when she wasn't <laughs> stealing pickles, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, uh, she had six different versions of the Bible. Uh, not like different Like it was the King James Version The, the New Testament Not the New Testament The New they were like, I forget them now There's like different editions
1: yeah.
2: Uh, yeah The Good Times Bible <laughs> Um they had like names. I didn't even think of them now, but they all had a funny different name. It, you know, if you read good, them side by good side, good news, it, slightly it? different wordings. The Good News? The Good the, News. No, I like the good, good, good Times Bible
0: because I, I love that. I would read what that. What you talking that. about? I would practice that. <laughs> and I also thought of Dynamite. Like, that's the <laughs> like, the Good Times
3: Bible. <laughs> Wonder well, Tommy. Okay. What was fun about six different Wouldn't Bibles? Wouldn't
0: there be a lot of detail
3: in those Bibles?
2: Huh? There was a lot of big getting <laughs> going on. No a lot of detail. A lot of details that the devil was in. The, in. the devil was in these details for sure, <laughs> quite clearly. But it was actually probably my first adjustment problem with Christianity was because just because I would, you know, in my boredom, flick through these Bibles, you go, well, what's King James say? And uh, you'd read the verse and go, ooh, that sounds quite official. And then you'd read the Good Times Bible, it'd be all like. Nice. And then Jesus said, good hey, news. man. Good oh, good times. Yeah, hey, sorry. man, just, you know, settle down and be nicer.' what? And are like, whoa, Jesus sounds so much cooler in this Bible. <laughs>
3: Like, also, that was, was quite, called um, Good News for Modern Man, I think. That's what we had in Hobart, yeah, anyway. Does everyone really Good News for Modern Man? It's kind of the groovy Bible.
2: Yeah, it's groovy. There's all the groovy... With and Jesus
3: the... said to the cats assembled,
2: "You." Yeah. 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 Like the came, it on the mouth is like a like stand-up gig. You know? <laughs> you know? Just like Beatitude and like a... <laughs> I like your Beatitude, yeah. But the book, the, the book that I came across that then uh, threw everything into a loop uh, was uh, Judy Bloom, the who I had read a lot of her uh, young adult novels. Uh, but she wrote an adult novel called Wifey, uh, which is about a, a suburban family, uh, the uh, extramarital affair. Uh, but the one that the, I just there's a scene that will never leave my head where uh, it describes the man. They're at a swimming party, the two couples, and uh, the man and the woman who are having an affair sneak off into the laundry room, and she sits on the dryer while it's in cycle, <laughs> as he kisses her. And she describes the kiss. And to this day, that is exactly how I kiss. I like, it's the perfect description. And, I, and I, because of it, I also love doing laundry. I do the laundry in our house. And also, the kiss is very specific. The way they describe what happens within the, the mouth is uh, based on flavors because they had baked Alaska. So now... My wife knows that if baked Alaska's on the menu, it is laundry time. <laughs> Although, to be fair, if I was being completely literal in my literary sense, it would be with the neighbor.
0: Well, it's all—it's
1: all better than hop to it, isn't it?
0: <laughs> uh, Rebecca, were there books? There were definitely books, definitely books. Um, my whole family loved books, um, and uh, my mum was a huge fan of the Thornbirds. I remember her reading the Thornbirds, and she was just like she kept she kept reading it, and I kept saying, "Oh, can I read it?" She's going, "No, no, 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 you can't. Not yet, not yet." And I said, "I want to read it because you're really enjoying it. Why can't I read it?" And eventually, I did. Uh, I think I read it when I was in Year Six. <laughs> And um, and I went. Good on you, mum. You can have the Thornbirds. Um, and then I read. I read every Judy Bloom book. I had every single Judy Bloom book in my library. Are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. Where young girls try to get bigger boobs by doing a chant. You know the things that we all did in the playground. You remember, <laughs> ladies, don't you? Um, uh, you know Tales of a Fourth Grade. A fourth Grade Nothing. Third Grade Nothing. Fourth Grade Nothing. Um, super Fudge. All of those books. But my dad's favourite go-to book to read was the dictionary. And I know everyone goes, what? I go, I he
1: was looking him. up restaurants.
0: But he was looking up restaurants. He's saying, it's a place where you go, you see if you eat. Um, and, but he and as somebody who English being his second language, he found reading the dictionary absolutely fascinating. Because there were words that he had never heard before. Because, you know, in, in you know in English class you didn't you didn't get that far or whatever. So he would sit and read the dictionary, and I got into that kind of thing too because then we had world book encyclopedias. Do you remember the world book encyclopedias? And they had the junior edition for the kids, and then they had the big full blown ones, and we had both. And they were my go-to books um, in the vein of my dad to just learn things that I didn't know. I absolutely was fascinated by them. And I, much like your grandmother, Tommy, with the pickles, I would often compose entire school projects based from chapters one through to four of a particular world book encyclopedias. I'm sure all teachers back then did. You'd just, like, copy it straight out verbatim. It was me! I said that. But, yeah, reading always. But every always. project was about the Panama Canal? Every project. Oh, no, I, I did one on dugongs as well, so, yeah. <laughs>
1: Hey, who were the winners and losers of this week? Anthony Aykroyd? Oh, well,
3: I think uh, I'm going to make my, my loser of the week is uh, good old uh, Keith Winchuttle, um, idiot-in-chief of the Quadrant magazine. <laughs> and um, I, I don't, did you catch Keith's uh, comment that um, after the Manchester tragedy, they should put
1: bombs in the ABC? I thought that was, you know... Well, Keith of- didn't say that, but Keith Underling said that. All oh, right. <laughs> I just don't want the defamation lawyers of Australia to be distracted from the Rebel Wilson case. <laughs> the idea of Keith having an underling
3: is uh, quite striking. Um, <laughs> but I think it was, it was Keith or the underling. We don't want these sort of uh, stupid, irresponsible statements made because, you know, Peter Dutton would be out of a job. And uh, <laughs> That's his job, yes. And the winners of the week, um, and this is a strange one, I was thinking about this, it's X... Liberal federal leaders, because it seems once they leave parliament, they become nice people. Like Malcolm Fraser, uh, became a humanitarian. And then I read on the weekend this rather intelligent article by John Hewson about acting on climate change. So, anything I'm waiting for John Howard to turn. <laughs> uh, can to think of it. George uh, George Bush was an idiot. <laughs> Don't know. Why I was sucking up to him for so long. <laughs> Maybe and even Tony Abbott. Uh, 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 I believe in a uh, uh, gay marriage if it's between a man and a woman.
1: Okay. <laughs> and on that note, please thank Anthony Aykroyd, Rebecca Day Unamuno, and Tommy Dean. Thank you for being part of DJF from the Sydney Writers Festival. Next week we're back in our usual studio with Tommy Subby Valentine, Wendy Harmer, and music from the star of Kinky Boots, Callum Francis. Until then, I'm Richard Gother, and thank God it's Friday! <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, thank you.